Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this month our guest is producer extraordinaire George Simon. George works out of New York City, has been in and out of Broadway offices for years making things happen, and now runs their own production company called Black Coffee Productions. Takes a certain kind of person to be able to swim in the tides of Broadway, and I wanted to find out how they stayed afloat. Um, so I'm originally from uh, Westchester County, the suburb right above New York City. Uh, so I grew up completely um, enthralled in the New York theater scene. And so I went to college in Allentown, Pennsylvania for a couple of years, escaped the city for a little while, but then I pretty much just knew I had to come back at some point. Um, just because, I, not that it's necessarily uh, the center of the theater world by any means, uh, but there are definitely a lot of opportunities here. And right after college, I was definitely interested in Broadway. Um, and so, you know, where else could I go? Well, well, Broadway happens to be in New York City, so I guess we kind of <laughs> yeah. narrowed it down there. Uh, what about exactly. Broadway? What you know, attracted you? I mean, it's it's huge. The the spectacle is unbelievable. Um, I, it's, I mean, for a lot of people, it's the place to go. Was that was that what it was for you? Definitely at first, um, just in terms of, you know, growing up as a little kid and your parents are bringing you to musicals when you, you know, begged for Christmas to go, um, bringing me, I remember seeing, um, in memory, uh, Hairspray. I remember going to see just Hairspray on Broadway originally and just being completely blown away, um, loving the idea of having, uh, this girl on stage who sort of looked like me, um, curvy plus size. And I just, yeah, I was immediately enamored at first, definitely as a performer. And from that standpoint, um, but then as I uh, started to grow up um, following, like, um, for example, like when Spider-Man was on Broadway, I was completely enthralled in just following um, that journey yeah. uh, through the press and as it got to the stage. And uh, that's when I started uh, sort of getting more interested in the producing side of things in business um, related to theater. And so uh, right after college, yeah, I came right back here um, to, you know, just sort of dip my toe in the water of Broadway. Sure. And I got an internship um, at a company called Just for Laughs Theatricals. They're an international uh, producing company that originated in Canada. But so they produce now um, Broadway, West End, um, national tours, Australia, pretty much all over the world. Um, and while I was working with them, I particularly was on the team of The Color Purple, A View from the Bridge, uh, the Crucible Revival and the ongoing maintenance of Kinky Boots on Broadway. Wow! What and what yeah, amazing. All these? <laughs> it was mostly it was a lot of it was um, ticket related, investor relations. Um, I was pretty much trying to uh, make sure the investors for these Broadway shows were happy, um, treated well throughout the process, informed. Um, as well as uh, doing just random tasks uh, for the show itself, opening night preparations, mm. um, email handling, pretty much anything um, executive related. Did you have a staff? Uh, I was I was on the staff. I, <laughs> I you know I wasn't a solo okay. producer yet. I was on the, I was on the team. Yeah. Um, so, so what does it take to keep a, a, an investor? happy it's, I, mean, besides, <laughs> I know that sounds you know, I, it, yeah, yeah as, as i was phrasing it i was like no find a better word, find a better word. <laughs> and yet i went there okay so <laughs> please, well, please rescue think, me no no i think um 
keeping an investor happy, it's more so, I feel like a lot of investors feel uh, that they're in the dark in terms of theater, that they don't totally, they understand on surface level of like what's going on with the show that, oh, we have, you know, this and this star being in the show um, or something like that. But then, but they sometimes feel that they don't know the true inner workings. Uh, The perfect example I can think of is, you know, with the Great Comet of 1812, with that whole fiasco, Mm, um, I'm sure the investors were in for a surprise um, because everything seemed from the outside to be doing well in terms of ticket sales. uh, But, you know, it was incredible. Yeah, the hype was absolutely incredible. And so my guess is, is that, you know, they didn't know anything about um, the casting issue that had happened in August. Um, And for me that, you know, in terms of investors, that's not really the way to go about it. Um, You have to sort of be as honest um, as, as um, yeah, I would say as honest as you can with them, just because, you know, it is a money and it's, it's a huge risk. It's their money. Um, Broadway is a complete risk all the time, pretty much, you know, you, you have Hamilton and you have a couple of um, surprise things, but mostly, you know, it's a big risk. And so, yeah, being honest, being upfront. And then I think the other thing is having them involved with the process as much as they can be. Um, So of course, a lot of investors only end up coming to opening night or something, but if you can um, have an investor come to a dress rehearsal or to, um, the press rehearsal um, in like a rehearsal studio rather than on stage. Um, I think it it just sort of cultivates a more um, warm and transparent sort of feeling. Yeah. And I think, I I think it's something that um, producers are learning that they have to work on, especially um, as investors are getting younger, younger. There are more millennials who are now interested in participating in theater and that sort of thing. And, you know, in the social media world. Um, I think they can expect it on that side too, if that makes sense. No, that makes perfect sense. Um, from what I'm gathering from, from, from what you're saying, uh, seems a lot of these investors are non theater people, um, looking to invest in theater. A, is that true? And B, why would they want to invest in theater if they're non theater people? I would say that's mostly true. Um, I think the reason to invest, well, okay, if I can be completely honest here, a lot of times um, when producers are bringing investors on their team, sure, there are investors who believe in the particular show, but a lot of times it's also investors who believe in the particular producer and have cultivated a relationship with this person, um, trusting them with either, you know, previous projects or seeing other successful work that they've done. Um, I think it's sort of, For non-theater people specifically, I think there's sort of uh, this glamorous sort of facade related to it. Not that it's necessarily unglamorous Broadway, but, you know, when you're working in it, it it just becomes work. But for an outsider to theater, you know, I think they see red carpets. um, I think they see cast parties. And it's exciting for them to be able to participate in that um, and to feel like they're part of that. I would say that's a huge, um, it's a huge appeal to non-theater uh, people, because I think, you know, there is a general understanding that it's a risk and you're most likely not going to make your investment back. So then why do you do it? You know, is it, is it for, um, is it to feel that, you know, there's something social in it? Um, for example, when I was working on the color purple, I think, you know, people were probably interested in, in investing because they would get to see Oprah Winfrey at that party, you know, (laughs) things Mm -hmm. like that. Sure. There, there are definitely multiple levels to this. And otherwise, you know, I think more and more people are 
um, understanding and valuing, valuing the arts, especially um, in the face of Trump and uh, other people who are trying to defund art. And, and though even though Broadway is just, you know, one faction of art, it is a place where um, people who have a lot of money that they can expend um, can actually help get some really interesting work on stage. Gotcha. You brought up a subject which I was wondering if I should get into or not, but since it's there already, let's throw it out and see what happens. Sure. The age of Trump. How the age is, of Trump. How is, how is, you know, uh, how is Broadway affected and reacting to... Again, um, not so much of a funding decrease because, I mean, we've never been all that eager to fund the arts in this country. And mm-hmm. it, gets, it gets lower and lower every year. Mm-hmm. But now that we've got more anti-intellectualism going on, mm-hmm. especially after that whole debacle with um, Pence and Hamilton. Yeah. It seems Broadway is now closer to the forefront in the political arena than it has been. I would agree. I would absolutely agree. Um, definitely Hamilton is a huge part of that mix. Um, but I think it's gotten to the point where Broadway shows are, are you know, potentially realizing their power in this, mm-hmm. uh, because of course, because it's, it's something it's, it's, they can be so longstanding. I think there's, there's a, a certain sort of, um, queerness that's always going to be attached to theater and, to, to actively be participating in an art that encourages and celebrates queerness in right. this time is almost just an act of protest in itself. You know, for drag queens to be performing on a Broadway stage in kinky boots is, you know, and even though it's, it's fun and it's, uh, you know, silly sometimes, it is protest in a way. Sure, yeah. Which is um, and, it's, too, you know, it's 2017. We should have gotten farther than that. <laughs> of course. Uh, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And it's interesting because um, in the age of Trump, of course, you also see um, and, you know, we were planning on talking about this anyway. But, you know, you see politicized issues um, entering just the workforce on Broadway. I think, you know, sexual harassment particularly is a huge issue um, in the Broadway industry, as well as, I mean, all branches of entertainment, as we've you know found out from headlines recently. Though, you know, people haven't been talking about it as much in the theater scene specifically. So let's let's get into this. Let's talk about it a bit. Sure. I mean, it's it you know it hit the the front pages with a with a smack, you know when, mm-hmm. uh, when Kevin Spacey was outed, or outed mm-hmm. himself at a particularly <laughs> yeah exquisite bad timing stunt. Um, yeah, it's, it's I never to... knew there was a way to come out you know in a bad way you know, <laughs> but uh, yeah. yeah, it was uh, it was pretty unfortunate. Yeah, um, which takes away nothing from the man's you know talent and success. Um, but again, uh, victimization mm-hmm. is, uh, still obviously, uh, rampant and other people are now being accused of acts that had been unmentionable before. So mm-hmm. from your point of view, um, what's going on here? I mean, is, is it going to get worse? Is it, is this a situation that's going to help the situation get better? I'm certainly hopeful that it can get better um, as long as we continue to be active in spotting it and being aware of our workforce, that sort of thing. Um, I'd love to, I'd love to tell a quick story. Uh, I was working uh, as a GM or actually, no, I was a company manager at that point for um, 
a general management office in Manhattan um, a couple summers ago. And I was at my lunch uh, break one day, but I was still in the office and I was working and, and my higher up had gone out for the afternoon and, you know, I was sorting through headshots, that sort of thing. I think we were in the middle of a casting session and he came back from his break and put a headshot right in front of me on my desk. And I was like, Oh, who's this? What's this? Um, and he said, Oh, you're going to give that actor a call back. And I said, Oh, did he, you know, come in an audition? What was the deal? And he said, Oh, well, we just essentially, we, we had sex. And so I'm going to give him a call back. And I was like, I, and I just, I sort of retorted back with, are we, is he going to be cast? And, uh, the person responded, Oh, probably not. And hmm. this is not exactly her, you know, harassment per se. Cause they, they did have consensual, um, yeah, I, sex as I can believe, but it's sort of, it's, it's crossing a line in terms of what I think is acceptable in like the workforce and in the office and not, um, especially, you know, with the idea of, um, that you wouldn't, that, you know, this person wouldn't even be considered to be cast, but, you know, oh, we're still going to give them a callback. And, you know, for me, that's just really, um, it was just shady and it, um, it made me completely turned off to the office. And I, I left, yeah. uh, once the summer was over essentially. And so as a, as a GM and as a producer, um, I have a, I have a very strong, um, urge to, to make sure all of my spaces and anything that, you know, my sight and hands touch, um, I, you know, I want it to be as safe, um, and as comfortable for people as possible and for people to not have to be put into those positions, um, of saying, oh, well, I'll get a call back if I, you know, sleep with this person or, um, yeah. because it's just, it's inappropriate. And I think, um, I think we need to collectively, um, be on the watch. And I think there's a couple of ways to, you know, do this in your own space. One is of course, you know, listening and, and, um, listening to the victim at all times um, and taking conscious steps in terms of a larger scale. Um, I heard there were potentially talks of um, making it a rule to have all auditions be filmed. And I completely agree with this idea. All union auditions, um, whether it be SAG or actors equity association right. to be filmed um, to make sure that there's no um, sort of shenanigans going on in the casting room. Exactly. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it seems to me like a very, very good idea. I mean, for on mm -hmm. several levels, the, the least of which being we can go back and look at that guy from Thursday at two o'clock and see if, you know, we want to use him. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It serves multiple levels and it creates jobs, you know, for um, people to film. Um, yeah. I think, I think it could be a very interesting thing and it. I think it would help um, actors, particularly women and trans folk feel safe in the casting room. I think, I think it's a, it's a fantastic idea. Um, yeah. Your website lists you as a uh, queer slash trans advisor for LGBTQA related projects. And since we're already touching upon this subject, can we talk more about your work in that area? Absolutely. Um, so I, um, I came out as originally just a queer in college. And then um, in the last couple of years, I was sort of figuring out my own gender identity. I identify um, as genderqueer and I use they, them pronouns. Mm -hmm. And so um, as I was, I, 
uh, as I was coming to my own um, sort of realizations and with my identity, I've also uh, started seeing the problems that queer and trans people face in the theater and entertainment industry. And so I thought, you know, as a producer, I'm, I'm meeting lots of people. I'm meeting casting directors, I'm meeting directors, um, I'm meeting production companies. And so it sort of got to the point where people were just starting to ask me general questions anyway, because, you know, they knew that I was genderqueer. And, and so a casting director would be, oh, well, you know, they'd ask me, what was, you know, what's the right way to, um, to, to write a casting notice that's not offensive to someone's gender? Or, um, or yeah, or, or how do I... Um, politely ask about pronouns, stuff like that. Sure, yeah. Um, and so once I started getting those questions, it just got to the point where I realized that um, more and more organizations needed this sort of guidance. And I'm by no means the trans expert. You know, there are many different experiences. And um, in terms of terminology, this is something that the queer community continues to have conversations about. Um, and it's, it's ever flowing and changing in terms of what words are in and out and pronouns, um, all that sort of stuff. Sure. It seems um, like a long period of adjustment or. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. But it's starting, it's, it's starting to catch on. Um, Actors Equity actually had, uh, it was like a three day weekend intensive for trans actors specifically to like talk to casting directors. So stuff is happening. Um, specifically I've advised in the past, uh, Stephanie Clapper casting, that's a, um, off Broadway and like regional casting office in the city, mm -hmm. um, as well as just individual projects here and there. Okay. Yeah. It, it seems the issue has expanded. The, the, the shades in the rainbow have multiplied over the past 10 years, at least. And, Absolutely. Well, yeah, it's, it's a question of respect. It's a question of dignity and, We've taken a very simple thing of being able to address somebody simply by how they appear. And now we have to know who they are um, and how best to address them because of who they are. So it mm -hmm. does get it does get a little confusing and you know, especially for white cis males, mm -hmm. and, you know, because most of us have never had to deal with this sort of thing before. But, uh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's for honestly, it's generally a, a just a common courtesy thing. Let's yes, say um, the way I yeah. think about it is, you know, you you're um, someone tells you about their friend and they have a gender neutral name like Dylan or, you know, what yeah. you would do is if you you know, if you didn't know that person's name, you would probably ask, oh, um, are they a boy or a girl? Right. And you would say they very naturally. Um, and, it, you know, it wouldn't even come to mind uh that, you know, that was altering anything. It's, you know, you just say it normally. And, but for some reason, you know, when I tell people that my pronouns are they, them, it can be such a hang up in terms of grammar. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, even my mom, you know, just trying to like get my mom to get the concept. She's like, but it's plural. And I'm like, but it's yes. not, yeah. it's not necessarily plural. It doesn't have to be plural. Well, the rest um, of us have to wrap our brains around assigning a plural to an individual. Yes, it, it, it's we will slip up at times. Oh, yes. Um, and it's well, it is simply a question of bending our brains around this whole different way because we've been taught one way all of our lives. And now all of a sudden we have to redo that. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think I, I yeah. think it's also important to remember um, that pronouns are not the end all be all. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very simple to just ask 
you know, someone their pronouns right when you meet them. That's sort of uh, generally something that's done within the queer trans community. Yes. Um, and, you know, remembering also, especially for me personally, pronouns are just, they're not that important. I would much rather feel that I could, you know, that I didn't have to be fired randomly just because I, you know, I'm queer. That's something I care about much more than, you know, someone misusing my pronouns. Right. Yeah. Well, so, you know, I think, I think there's, you know, it's, it's gonna, it's a differing uh, level of importance to different people. And I mean, it's, you know, it's very simple. I think most, you know, people just appreciate you even asking, um, if, you know, if you're not sure how someone presents, then, you know, it's better to just be like, Oh, Hey, you know, what pronouns do you go by? And it, it doesn't have to be a big deal at all. And, and, you know, let's say you mess up my pronouns or something, you know, it's, you don't have to make a, you know, big fuss over it. It's, you know, you just say, Oh, sorry, they, you know, right. it's, yeah. it's, it can be very simple. And I think, you know, as time goes on, I think it'll become, um, you know, something that's just done automatically or, or our, you know, Facebook profiles will, you know, continue to just <laughs> make it an automatic thing or, right. I remember remember asking the question for the first time myself um, and wasn't sure if I was going to insult that person uh, or not, but now I'm just so used to it that it's second nature for me to just say, yeah, how do you identify? What pronouns do you want? Um, Let's go back to your producing. I brought this up earlier. I want want to get more and more into this. You know, Black Coffee Productions and you do the Fresh Grind uh, Festival. Yes. Okay. So Black Coffee Productions, I, um, after having done, um, you know, that Broadway internship and a couple of more um, big office um, opportunities, I started to realize that maybe I didn't want to live in the Broadway sphere. As much as I adore Broadway um, and, and love seeing it, I still do. Um, I just realized that, you know, of course, you know, there are occasional good shows that come out, but there's also a lot of fluff. And, and I, you know, I just, I wasn't loving everything that was coming to the stage recently. And so I I was getting more and more interested in smaller stuff um, in theater that's, that was being made that was, you know, either political or more important in the time than, you know, what was necessarily being brought to Broadway. And so that's when I decided to make Black Coffee Productions. Um, it's a, it's just, you know, my solo little company for my own, uh, endeavors. I started the company by producing a short film called Curbside Waltz. And then I produced the Fresh Grind Festival. Um, I'm a total Leo, so I always go big first. (laughs) And so I decided to produce 10 new plays and musicals in this festival, um, staged readings of each of these productions. And they weren't, it wasn't, um, your typical, um, at, at uh, music stand stand readings. It was more, it was a little extra than that because we also had lighting design. Uh, we had sound incorporated. Um, it was just, it was extra elements essentially that we added. So our playwrights participating writers um, could just get a, a little bit of extra feeling about uh, the tone of their play and that sort of thing. So yeah, so the Fresh Grind Festival, it was in January, 2017, the first one. Mm-hmm. And it included eight new plays, two new musicals. Um, and it was fantastic. Actually, speaking of Trump related theater, we actually, uh, it was over the weekend of the inauguration. And so we were doing, let me think we presented about, I think six shows on the day of the inauguration we presented. Mm -hmm. And we, when we were in the theater, we didn't have, uh, 
you know, the inauguration playing at all. You know, we just in the lobby, we kept on the women's march and uh, live streaming to the lobby. And it just felt it felt incredible to be making theater on that day, especially, you know, non-commercial theater. It was um, very much just um, 10 new pieces of work that felt relevant and that felt important. Um, one was about the, the big musical that we did, which is a full length musical, um, was about a multiracial gay family um, who the son of the family uh, was a chess prodigy. And it was a beautiful musical about um, this mixed family. Or, you know, we also did um, a lot of our pieces definitely had feminist undertones, um, strong female characters. And so it was just, it was really exciting to make um, like and introduce amazing theater. Yeah. Oh, absolutely perfect. I think, <laughs> you know, because especially, you know, 10 shows, it's a lot to put on in a small amount of time. Yes, it Particularly, is. we had full casting um, for this for this thing. There's an amazing casting director who is, she's uh, my age too. She's young. She's 24. Her name is Ari Rudis. And she is a powerhouse. She cast 10 full shows in like, three weekend sessions. Um, we worked like maniacs to cast this thing, but I think we were so driven by the idea, um, of creating some new and important stuff Yeah, well, and for supporting that stuff. Right. Well, the project certainly seems worth it. I mean, to bring 10 brand new pieces of across the board material you know, yeah. to the audience, that's, that's always a noble endeavor. Um, as a producer though. So, especially in New York, how do you manage to fund these things? Um, it's, you know, funding comes uh, from different places for different projects. For the Fresh Grind Festival, there was a lot of crowdsourcing for that um, because, it, you know, it was something uh, that we felt was more community oriented. Um, so there was some crowdsourcing and a couple of, you know, private investors for that one. But then, of course, you know, for bigger projects, you don't, you know, you don't go and fundraise on Indiegogo for Broadway. <laughs> so, you know, not yet, it's you don't. Yeah. not yet. Well, they tried. They uh, Ken Davenport did do it with the Godspell revival, but no one's tried to do it since. <laughs> gotcha. But uh, no, I think it's and I think the other thing is, you know, you have to. New York City is always going to be expensive. Mm -hmm. You have to look and creep into the corners to find the resources that you can, um, because it is out there. It is doable. Um, for example, there are lots of, you know, rehearsal studios. It got to the point, you know, we were having so many auditions and so many rehearsals for this thing that, you know, Shetler Studios was able to give me, you know, sort of a bulk discount deal, which, you know, always helps. Yeah. Um, similarly, uh, the space we found, uh, for the theater, there's this beautiful white box theater, um, in Midtown and it's called theater lab. And their, you know, their rental prices for a midtown facility uh, were just absolutely um, in line with our budget. And, you know, it was very hard to find uh, a similar theater to that one in terms of finding that, you know, midtown right. location where we could have industry professionals attend. Cool. Can you briefly explain White Box? Yes. Oh, White Box Theater. It, um, it's a totally mind-blowing experience because, you know, everyone only really knows the black box theater, yeah. but a white box theater is just, it was a complete white room, you know, a square box. Um, it had movable seating for ours, but I think, you know, it probably depends on the space, but pretty much uh, it has a totally different vibe 
because lighting has a whole new power to it. When you're lighting in a black box, you know, it pretty much just falls on the actors and, you know, the black uh, sort of absorbs the rest of the light. Yeah. But when you're lighting in a white box, the entire room becomes enveloped in whatever light you choose to use. And so it just creates a totally different tone. It was also amazing in terms of projections. You can project anything on a white box. Um, we were, yeah. we did, um, we did one sci-fi play called Deeper Alexandria that was by a playwright named Emerson FD. And in that play, um, it was about two um, two artificial intelligences communicating with each other. Um, and while we did that play, there was code, there was uh, computer code that was being just projected all around them, um, and it was it was really cool. But you wouldn't be able to do that in a space that's not completely white. Seems like a heck of an experience. I mean, it must be reflective as all get out and. <laughs> I'm definitely trying to wrap my mind around a white box. Especially because lighting designers, you know, always tell actors and costume designers, no white on stage, you know, mm -hmm. because it is so shocking to the system in a lot of way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, a white or costume another... draws all the attention. Yes. Yeah. But if you're in an entirely white space, then your players tend to really stand out on it, almost yeah. as if you were drawing, you know, like a cartoon character on a white piece of paper. Mm -hmm. You know, just yeah. the way that they, they stand out in, in sort of a different way. And so I don't think uh, theater labs a very specific space. And uh, we definitely had some challenges because um, not every piece is going to be perfect in a white box. Some pieces were better fit for the space than others. Um, but the correct piece um, can really be spectacular in there, depending, I, you know, depending visually. Um, yeah, depending on yeah. the tone of the piece and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's, 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 you must have to help to rethink your entire staging. So is there going to be a uh, fresh grind this coming January? Um, there won't be one this upcoming January. Um, I'm currently, um, I'm actually, I'm engaged. And so I'm in a spot right now where we're not quite sure what our next step is. Uh -huh. And so there will be a fresh grind festival. It just doesn't have a date yet. <laughs> gotcha. Well, I'm definitely. So details forthcoming. <laughs> let me know. I want to come see this. Oh, for sure. <laughs> okay. Last couple of things. And then I want to let you go. Um, sure. let's, let's move like 1200 miles to the West to the the heart of barbecue country. Um, ah, yes. Yes. Uh, Kansas City, or to be more precise, Olathe, mm -hmm. the Midwest Dramatist Conference. Um, there's a piece on your blog that says three things I learned, which I mm -hmm. want to touch on also. But uh, I met you because you were on one of the two panels that yes. was uh, adjudicating, I guess, or critiquing, I'm going to say, or commenting yeah. on. Let's, let's, say, let's say commenting on. Uh, half of what turned out to be 44 short plays. Yeah. Now, I can see commenting on a couple of plays in one day. Um, but to go through what, 22 in yeah. a couple of days, I mean, that must have been a mind bender. How do you keep your perspective? It was definitely, it was definitely exhausting. I will say that. But I think... Um, the way I tried to keep my perspective is um, in between each play, I really tried to wipe 
my slate clean. I, you know, would try to get some water. I would try, you know, to just take a couple minutes to like sit and, you know, set up a new, I, for every play I did, I had a page um, in a notebook. And so I, you know, I would take a moment to reset, have a blank page, look at that blank page for a minute. Um, because, you know, it would be very easy to um, start comparing the plays if I were to let myself. But I think that would, would be a disservice to the playwrights. Um, just because, you know, what what's the point of comparing, you know, two 10-minute plays that maybe are both tragic? I just, I, you know, I don't see a point when each play really has its own well, it's um, not, it's story and tone. It's not really. And, yeah, exactly. That's yeah. the other thing is that we weren't, yeah, there, there wasn't, you know, any sort of prize. We weren't, you know, looking for the best play. Um, and so, no, it was, it actually, it ended up being fairly easy because I was kind of surprised at how good most of the plays were. I don't know what I was, you know, totally expecting. Mm, yeah. Um, but you know, usually when you see some sort of large festival, it's a mixed bag, you know, you have Absolutely, some hits, some yeah. misses. And I was generally, um, I was, I think I was, I was surprised from the beginning at how good everything was. And so I think it made it easier for me to stick in it I, I agree and to not that. get yeah. to, not to get to, uh, you know, lost in that. Cause of course, you know, when you're seeing, there comes a point, you know, when it's like the 12th play of the day and, you know, your head just, you know, feels like it's going to fall off. Yeah. Um, but you know, we had good breaks in there. I think I spent, I didn't even spend like lunch breaks eating. I would just like went back to the hotel room and just like zend out because <laughs> I just like needed a moment, you know, cause you're just, you're, in, you're taking in a lot. It's, it's um, a lot to do. I mean, but, it's, there's a lot of mental activity going on there. Yeah. But I think, Oh, it really kept me on my toes though. And I, I definitely have, I took, um, I took a playwriting class in college with an amazing professor at Muhlenberg college named Brendan Vitipka. And he, um, he just essentially like, he taught me what, you know, really goes into a good 10 minute play. That was like the whole focus of that class. And I'm so grateful now I'm, I'm no playwright. Um, so that part of the class, you know, didn't end up sticking with me, but in terms of, um, what he taught us about the structure of a good 10 minute play um, and what needs to go into a 10 minute play. I'm so, Oh, I'm so grateful. I took that class because I carried that knowledge with me um, to the Midwest dramatist festival for sure. Yeah. It's, it's, I was, I was also surprised at the, the consistent quality of the work being presented because I, yeah. fully, I fully expected to find, I mean, you got 44 plays, the odds are there's going to be a clunker or two in there. And I saw half the plays and I didn't yeah. find one that was a clunker. I found a couple that were outstanding. Um, yeah. And the rest were all of very high quality. So it was, it was a wonderful experience. And for me, I mean, yeah, I am a playwright and I found it uh, so rejuvenating. Absolutely. I completely agree. Yeah. So you came back and you wrote this this blog piece, Three Things I Learned at the Midwest Dramatist Conference. And I'm going to sandbag you here just a little bit because you said you're not a playwright. But the first, <laughs> thing, the first thing you wrote down was anyone can be a playwright. <laughs> I do believe it. I'm not. Well, I'm not a published playwright. Okay. <laughs> we can we can amend the statement. But no, I do believe that anyone can be a playwright. And the festival completely confirmed that in me. 
Um, you know, we met people who picked up, you know, the pen for the first time in their forties and churned out incredible, truthful work, you know, without having had a single, you know, class or having gotten their BFA or, mm -hmm. you know, I, and that's, you know, that's why I wrote that. Um, I was, I was surprised, you know, when I would learn the backgrounds of some of the playwrights, it was such a, it was such a diverse gathering. It was an extremely diverse gathering. We had all ages. We had all, you know, yeah. Every, whatever factor you want to throw in there. We had all of them. And yeah. People getting their masters and, and grandparents who were, were just starting to write, you know, it was, uh, I was totally inspired by it actually. So did I, I came back with so many ideas. It was, it was. I can't wait to go back. Um, yeah. But yeah, you also wrote down the plays are more diverse and playwrights uh, engage by writing relevant work. And that's the thing I want to yes. touch on. And then, and then I've got one more question for you. Um, okay. I think the theater is one of those, is one of the last art forms where relevancy is required. Mm. You know, it's, it's one of the last chances we get to confront an audience with issues that might not be so easy to deal with and relevancy is not always easy to deal with um if we're talking about social issues you know it's it's there's going to be controversy there there's going to be a little bit of uh, status quo uh, reorganization um and i'm thinking that theater is important in that <laughs> very and you know it's where else are we going to find it? The movies aren't going to give it to us. Um, yeah. You know, and uh, I haven't been to a poetry reading in years, so I can't comment on that. But it seems like theater is in some ways specializing in, A, giving voices to people in situations that up until now we've been very comfortable not looking at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I would completely agree with that. Um there's something, and I, I don't know if it's because you know there can you can definitely see there are some movies you know that can pull you in and um, and can you know make you feel things, but there's something about being in that room, in being in a room with um, a piece of, of, of a piece of theater and all of the elements uh, that helps create it, that just has an impact that's unlike anything else. Yeah. Um, I wear, you know, I rarely cry when I see movies. I always cry when I see theater, you know, <laughs> it's like, it, it's just something. And I think it's, you know, it's the immediacy of it. Um, and especially, you know, as we're delving into more uh, virtual reality, experiential theater, um, I think that changes it too. Because if you're, if you're right, if you're actually in it, if you're, you know, in the movie, it, mm -hmm. you know, it just completely changes the game of how impactful yeah. uh, the, the piece can be. Well, it's live people doing it right there in front of you. That makes a hell of a difference. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Cool. Last question, then I'll let you go. What okay. is a closet salad tosser? This has been bugging me since I read <laughs> it. Please explain this. Okay. So I, you know, on the side, we all need our side hustles and gigs. So I do general administration for a variety of people. And so a closet salad tosser. Um, I had one boss who, uh, was particular in, um, everything that they ordered. Um, and so one day I had gotten them a salad and I forgot, <laughs> I, for, I, I put the dressing on the side. I didn't have the salad, the dressing mixed in. And so my boss said to me, Oh, go back to, go back to chopped and have them 
put the dressing in. And I just thought that was the most ridiculous thing in the world because, you know, it's just dressing. You just, you know, you pour it on and, you know, wait, wait, how wait, much wait, wait, wait. is this there to was, do? This guy was too lazy to, to put the dressing on. It wasn't, even, it, wasn't even, it wasn't even lazy. The excuse that they said was that it was like um, – that like they didn't have time to do it, which to me is, was the silliest thing because I, you know, I often saw this person on their cell phone, you know, just fiddling around and like, you don't have time to pour on salad dressing. So I just thought that was the most ridiculous thing. And it was a rainy day and I really just did not want to go back to the salad place. So I stepped into the closet. I opened the lid. I poured on the dressing and then i just sort of shook it quietly you know with the with the lid back on for a minute you know waited there for an extra minute to you know make it seem that i had gone downstairs and i gave my boss a salad and there was no complaints so my closet tossing was efficient (laughs) oh my god is that not the silliest thing you've heard i know i that's i mean when you're an administrative like assistant to crazy people in new york it it changes the game in terms of the stuff you have to go through and like the ridiculous behavior you see (laughs) and and i can write a play about it (laughs) well me too (laughs) well i'm I'm also thinking that there's probably somebody out there who would have brought it back to the store and had them do it um i I, I maybe would have you know i maybe would if it was a different day or if i was in a different mood but Nah, that day I, I just thought that was the silliest thing. Oh my god! Ah, <laughs> uh, well, thank you, George Simon, for being here and talking with us and having so much fun. Thank you, George. It was a total pleasure. Hey, kids, thanks for listening to Onstage Offstage. Onstage Offstage is produced monthly, and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater we haven't covered yet or know of someone in the theater world who'd make some great chat, please send us a note at info at OnStageOffStage.org. OnStage Offstage believes in and advocates for a world where all people are free to live their lives as they wish, in peace and without fear. We believe in universal respect, diversity, and equality in all areas of life for all people, no matter what their nationality, race, religion, age, sexual status, or gender. Onstage Offstage will never promote or endorse those who seek to diminish others because of who they are. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again, and happy theatering to all of you. (laughs) 